Well, I would invite your attention this morning to uh, the book of Acts again, if I could. <clears throat> this time we'll turn to the 16th chapter of uh, the book of Acts. And uh, we'll be reading some verses here that uh, I know are familiar to some of you, if not a, uh, a majority of you. But uh, something that we need definitely to hear time and time again, as is the case with most of God's Word. Uh, so if you would look with me now in Acts chapter 16, I would begin reading with verse uh, 25, and uh, we'll read uh, down through uh, verse 34 of Acts chapter 16. And... Uh, For the title of the message this morning, uh, I would simply uh, call it Salvation, a work not my own. Salvation, a work not my own. So let's look now here at Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Well, let's go to the Lord again in prayer, if we could, and especially I would ask you to join me in praying that God would be pleased to speak through His Word, to bless His Word, to use it in all of our hearts and lives uh, as we are gathered here this morning. So bow with me, if you would, in prayer, please. Our gracious Father, we once again bow before You, and we come now to specifically ask, Lord, that it might please You to make Your Word a living and powerful Word in our heart and in our hearing, and that You would bless it, Father, such that it would bring about in each of our hearts and lives that which you intend, that which is your purpose for your honor and for your glory as well as for our good. And so we commit this time as we look to your word together into your hands, trusting that you will accomplish your purpose. And Father, we're so encouraged uh, to be reminded of what the prophet Isaiah wrote when he said, that your word will not return unto you void, but it will accomplish that which 
you have purposed and that which you intend. And so we trust, Lord, that it will be so this morning as we listen, praying for understanding hearts, praying that we might be able to hear as you speak, Lord, for your glory and for our good. This we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if I could this morning, let me uh, bring us up to speed a little bit uh, as to this passage of Scripture. We might, if we were to just begin there in verse 25 without uh, uh, going back and looking at the context a little bit, we might be asking our question, well, what in the world were Paul and Silas doing in jail? What were they doing in prison? Well, uh, if we go back... uh, a little ways here in the uh, 16th chapter of Acts, we'll find that uh, the Apostle Paul uh, uh, received a vision. He had a vision of uh, uh, a Macedonian, a man from Macedonian, uh, saying, come and help us, come and help us. And so uh, uh, Paul and Silas uh, begin to make their way then toward Macedonia. And uh, they arrived... uh, at uh, the city of Philippi, which, according to the scripture there, was the chief city of Macedonia. And uh, they decided that they would uh, uh, go out uh, by the river where they understood uh, some were meeting for prayer. And uh, perhaps someone had uh, let them know that uh, Folks gathered there by the river from time to time for a prayer or whatever. And so they went there, and uh, a woman by the name of Lydia was there. She was uh, a seller of purple from Thyatira. And uh, as the Apostle Paul was speaking, uh, God opened that woman's heart to hear, to receive, and to believe the gospel. And Lydia became the first convert then in, in Macedonia uh, under the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the preaching of God's Word there. And so it, the, the context goes on to tell us that uh, as they were going to the place of prayer, uh, a slave girl who had a spirit uh, of divination, uh, she was possessed of a demon, uh, a foul, evil spirit, and uh, she uh, was in the habit of... Uh, uh, telling the fortunes of uh, uh, those who were her masters and bringing them much gain because of it. And, and so she would follow after the Apostle Paul and Silas and uh, obviously Luke, as Luke is writing this, and he says, following after Paul and us. She kept crying out, These men are the bond servants, or, or the servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And they just kept, uh, she just kept doing this over and over again, it seems. And, and so Paul became greatly annoyed, the scripture says. And he said uh, to that evil spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Now then, uh, we want to know why these men were in prison. <laughs> it's for this simple reason. This demon-possessed girl, if you would, was bringing a lot of monetary gain uh, to those who were her masters, and that was coming to a conclusion. And, of course, uh, we know that uh, that's always uh, a problem uh, when uh, people uh, cease to be able to gain 
the the finances and the income and all that they would like to have, and so uh, they sought to do something about this, and so they basically uh, went to the leaders of the community and told them that uh, these men were uh, uh, creating some real problems there and uh, uh, proclaiming customs that were not lawful for them to accept and to observe as Romans. And they stirred up others in the community. And the scripture tells us that the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates, and they tore their robes off of them. They took their robes off of them, and they beat them with rods, uh, several blows, several strokes of these rods. And then they threw them into the prison, uh, commanding the jailer or the guard there to... uh, keep them securely, to guard them securely. And, and so he, being concerned, uh, put them uh, into the inner prison. And not only that, but he fastened their, their feet in the stocks. And then we come to our text here this morning, which begins at midnight. Paul and Silas were singing and praising God uh, there in the prison. Uh, this tells you a lot about Paul and Silas, does it not? Not only that were they falsely thrown into prison, but they were beaten with rods severely before they were cast into prison. And if that's not enough, uh, take into consideration that uh, a prison such as this one was probably not anything like what prisoners uh, have uh, for jails today. This was not a comfortable place. This was probably kind of a dark, damp, dungeon-type place. And they were thrust even on down into the inner prison there, and their feet were fastened securely in the stocks. And yet we find them about midnight uh, singing praises to the Lord, uh, worshiping God. And the Scripture told us here that uh, uh, the prisoners, the other prisoners heard them singing and praising God. And obviously this Philippian jailer perhaps also uh, had heard them singing praises unto the Lord. Well, uh, a great earthquake uh, shook the place and their chains fell off and the jailer, when he woke up from uh, sleep, maybe the singing of the apostles, uh, put them to sleep, put him to sleep or whatever. But when he woke up, he was greatly alarmed. He was afraid because he saw that the door to the prison was open and he thought all the prisoners had had escaped. And he had been commanded to keep these men securely. And so he was drawing out his sword about to take his own life. And Paul called out, cried out loudly to him, don't do yourself any harm uh, because we're all here. We're all here. And so he came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he asked him this question, what must I do to be saved? Now, we don't know if, uh, if the salvation, because we're not told here that he was talking about was, what am I going to do to be saved from what's going to happen to me because of uh, what's happened here at the prison? Or if he had actually heard enough from Paul and Silas that he was aware of the fact that he needed the salvation that all of us needs the salvation from the guilt and the penalty of our sin. Nevertheless, uh, he cried out to them. He asked them, what must I do to be saved? Now, this is uh, uh, not perhaps an uncommon thing at all for 
lost men that to ask such a question, what must I do to be saved? Uh, this is a, a very universal, common misunderstanding uh, of natural man or lost man to think that he can do something uh, to secure salvation or he can do something uh, to satisfy God or to make himself pleasing in the eyes of God so that uh, he would be saved. And that's what this man was doing, wanting to know what can I do uh, to be saved? Well, the Apostle Paul and Silas told him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved in your house. Uh, but you know, perhaps you recall something else the Apostle Paul would say on another occasion recorded in a letter that he wrote to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, well, if you want to turn there with me, just turn there and look. Uh, most of us are familiar with this, but uh, always good for us to, to see it as uh, we hear it. So in Ephesians chapter 2, a very familiar uh, portion of God's Word, Paul says here, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. Through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, Paul makes it very clear there that uh, we are saved not by something we do or even can do, but by the grace of God. Uh, and it's not of our own works. Uh, we read, as Paul would write to Titus a little bit later, uh, in Titus chapter 3, uh, these words, beginning with verse 3 down through verse 7 of Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says here, For we also once were foolish ourselves, being disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Uh, King James says, no, uh, not according to our works of righteousness. God didn't save us according to our works of righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, this Philippian jailer said, What must I do? Well, in essence, the Apostle Paul and Silas were telling this man when they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they were saying, you must trust in Him and Him alone. Placing no confidence in yourself, placing no confidence in what you do. It's not what you do that will save you, but rather what God has done in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is this? Why is this that man cannot save himself? Why is it that he can't do anything uh, to satisfy God in and of himself? Well, 
I want to take you back to a passage of Scripture that we often refer to back in the first book of the Bible. The very first book, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. You, Most of you are familiar with this because, as I've mentioned, uh, I make reference to it often. It's so important that we see and understand this. But in Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, We read these words. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, saw that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Uh, Some translations say, my spirit will not abide with man forever. Basically, uh, what this is probably telling us here when, when he says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, is that God has determined he's going to withdraw his life giving spirit. Uh, and so uh, we read a little bit further here in verses 5 through 7, where he goes on to say that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. This is undoubtedly why he's saying that he's going to withdraw his life-giving spirit because the wickedness of man is so great on the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry, verse 6 says, that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And he went on to say, I'll blot out, I will blot out Man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. God, it seems here, has determined that he's just going to wipe out all of life from off the face of the earth. Going to wipe them out. Uh, Going to destroy them. Uh, Well... (laughs) Have things changed? Have things changed? God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. Is it different today than it was then? Not according to what the Scripture tells us. We read in the prophecy of Jeremiah, which was written quite some time after what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 6, and the prophet Jeremiah tells us in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah in verse 9 that the heart of man is deceitful, deceitful, desperately wicked or exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? Uh, An indication that uh, anything and everything that comes out of the natural heart (coughs) is wickedness, it's corruption, it's sin. It's abhorrable to God. Uh, Hasn't changed, has it? Hasn't changed at all. We come to the New Testament... And we find the Lord Jesus, as he's speaking in the third chapter of John uh, to Nicodemus. Uh, in, in verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, that which is born of the flesh, that which is born naturally, that's all he is, a natural man, a fleshly man. And uh, he hasn't changed at all from what we find here in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, he still has a heart that is contrary to God, at enmity to God. 
Uh, and it is because of this that sinful man is not able to save himself. Uh, the flesh profits nothing, Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63. There is no benefit whatsoever from our old fleshly nature. There never has been since man sinned in the Garden of Eden, and there never will be uh, any profit or benefit of the flesh as far as making us acceptable in the eyes of God. We are sinful as we come into this world. But back to Genesis chapter 6 again here. And the scripture tells us on a little bit further down in verse 8 that after God had determined he's just going to destroy all life from the face of the earth, that there is an exception. There was an exception. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, and obviously from what we go on to read, his family uh, found favor in the eyes of God. Why is this? Well, we know that because of what the Scripture tells us, in that God had set his love upon uh, a people from before the foundation of the world. Uh, God chose a people out of all of the mass that of humanity that would ever dwell upon the face of the earth long before ever man was created uh, in before the foundation of the world God set his love upon a people and Noah was one of those Noah was one God set his love upon before the foundation of the world and so Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and that's exactly what the apostle Paul Uh, was telling us there in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, is it not? For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Man is saved by the grace of God, not by his own doing, not by his own works, not by his own efforts. Uh, We are saved by God's rich, free, and sovereign grace and that alone is the source of our salvation. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, if you'd care to look there with me, as we reflect again upon the fact that uh, sinful man is not able to save himself. Uh, Listen to what Paul wrote uh, to the church at Rome in chapter 8 of Romans, verses 5 through 8. Here Paul says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, those who are just fleshly, uh, those who are just natural men and who have not uh, a new heart, a new life with the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Uh, Those who are according to flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind uh, set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Our King James tells us the carnal mind is enmity to God which literally means is hostile toward God. The natural heart, the natural mind is at enmity to God, hates God, hostile to God, 
really wants nothing to do with a holy God. And uh, so Jesus would tell us in John chapter 6 and verse 63, if you'd care to look at that with me, John 6 and verse 63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. And as we saw a few moments ago, the flesh doesn't benefit us at all. The flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit that gives life. Uh, and so we come to the conclusion from what we've seen already here this morning, or we must, I trust, if God enables us to see it, that salvation of a sinner is not by our own hands, as the hymn writer said. Salvation is not a work of our own. It's a work of God by His grace on our behalf. Now I want you, if you would, to pay real close attention to something I'm about to say here because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. So I want you to listen real close. And it is simply this. A sinner, a sinner is saved by works. Oh, but Wayne, didn't you just say that, as Paul said, uh, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes, I did say that. But nevertheless, a sinner is saved by works. But it's not our own works. It's the works of another that saves us. Isn't that what uh, Paul wrote to Titus there that we read a few moments ago? Look at it again with me, if you would. Uh, Let your eyes uh, focus upon what Paul said here in Titus chapter 3 to Titus when he wrote to him, beginning with verse 5 of Titus chapter 3. He said, He saved us. He saved us. That is, God through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not according to our works of righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Saved by works? Yes, by all means, but not by our own works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. Uh, In Romans chapter 3, Verse 10 and following, Paul tells us that there's none righteous. No, not one. Not one. Or we think we are. We think we have some goodness uh, that will satisfy God. That's why natural man, just like the Philippian jailer, will be asking the question, what can I do? What must I do uh, to be saved? There was a a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what can I do to receive eternal life? (laughs) What can I do? What can I do? Oh, but we have no righteousness that is satisfying in God's eyes, do we? Isn't that what Paul is saying here in Romans uh, uh, chapter 10, or chapter 3, beginning with verse 10? Verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. 
He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. The prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's eyes. In Isaiah 64 and verse 6. All of our righteousnesses, plural. Add them all up. Stack them all up from the day you're born to the day you die. And they all amount to nothing but a pile of filthy rags in God's eyes. Because they all come out of a sinful heart. Come out of a heart that is alienated from God. At enmity to God. Separated from God. Dead to God. All our righteousness, plural, is as filthy rags in God's eyes. Therefore, the Apostle Paul can say, there's none righteous, not in the eyes of God. Not even one. Not even one. And so salvation, salvation, deliverance from sin, its guilt, its penalty, salvation, all of it beginning to end is by God's grace. Not by our own works, but by His justification. You know, salvation can be spoken of in three senses. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is that whereby God Himself, because of what Christ has done, declares us righteous in His eyes. Not based upon our own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of Christ. Justification. We can justify ourselves. We can't come into the presence of a holy God, the sinful people that we are, and declare ourselves righteous or just before God. How foolish to have such a thought. Justification, all, all by the work of Christ. Sanctification, that process through which God continues to work in our hearts and lives to make us everything that He have us to, would have us to be, to prepare us, for an eternity in His presence. Sanctification. Oh yes, now we, we can yield ourselves to Him, whereas before we couldn't and wouldn't even do that. Now we can yield ourselves to His working in our hearts and lives. Therefore, the Apostle Paul can say things like what he wrote to the Philippians when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But, knowing that it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of His own good pleasure. We just yield to the working of God in our lives that we might be sanctified, not only set apart to be holy, but be made holy in the eyes of God as He prepares us for an eternity. And then glorification. Uh, the consummation of salvation. Uh, Glorification is to be made like Christ Himself. Remember what Paul or John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 3? He said, When we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's to be glorified. To see Him, to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye uh, into the image of Christ Himself. 
Now that's a mind-boggling concept, isn't it? That's a mind-boggling thing to think about, to think that we who are so sinful could ever be like Christ. And yet, that's what salvation brings us to. But all of it, beginning to end, start to finish, is not our work, but it's His. But it's His. Well, I would ask you to turn with me now to the Gospel of John, if you would. And we're going to spend the remainder of our time, for the most part, looking at something here in the Gospel according to John. And I would invite your attention to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 19. We have got to come to the place of seeing that this matter of salvation is not something that we can do. It's something that God has done for us in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus. And when that Philippian jailer came to Paul and Silas and said, What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by that, the Apostle Paul and Silas were telling this man, you must believe not only that he is who God says he is, but you must also believe what he did. What he did. And so we must believe in the person of Christ and we must believe in the work of Christ as well. The person and the work of Christ. Well, I want you to look with me, if you would, in the 19th chapter here, the Gospel according to John. Uh, Well, let's just begin looking at verse 28 uh, down through verse 30. If we were to spend a little bit of time uh, in the previous verses here, we would know that Uh, This 19th chapter of John's Gospel is his account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Uh, His uh, being brought before uh, Pilate and being turned over to uh, the Jews to be uh, crucified as they were wanting him to be. We see that back here in verse I can get my fingers to work and turn the page here. We see that back here so Verse 16 tells us they handed him over to be crucified. And uh, he was nailed to the cross between two thieves. But down to verse 28, Jesus is on the cross here. And it says, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. And he's uh, in reference here to all that was prophesied about the Lord Jesus uh, that would take place at this time during his crucifixion. And uh, all had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture. And Jesus said, I am thirsty. And so a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up. His spirit. It is finished. 
we recognize that these words, these three words, it is finished, uh, were the very last words of our Savior from the cross upon which he died, suffering uh, as our substitute, uh, suffering the wrath of God uh, to fully pay our debt of sin. Uh, his last words, it is finished. What was he talking about? What did he mean when he said it is finished? Well, uh, Peter tells us back here in First Peter, First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter says of him, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. You were a street sheep, like sheep going astray. Uh, but now you've been returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. When Jesus said, it is finished, he's saying he has done what he came into this world to do. Uh, we see chapter 3 of First Peter there in verse 18 uh, where Peter goes on to say, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Jesus said it is finished. Bowed his head. And the scripture says there in verse 30, he gave up his spirit. He died. Died in the place of sinners as a substitute uh, for those whom God set his love upon from before the foundation of the world. Uh, Jesus tells us in John chapter 6 and verse 38 why he came into this world. He said he came to do the Father's will. He came to do what the purpose of the Father was. And to do his Father's will and to finish the work that God sent him to do was more important to Jesus than anything else. More important than anything else. Uh, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to John, uh, Jesus is at a Samaritan well and he's uh, speaking with the Samaritan woman there and his disciples had gone into uh, the city or the village or whatever to find something to eat. Uh, to bring back, and they came back and uh, uh, tried to get him to eat. He said, well, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. Uh, to do the Father's will was what was meat, what was nourishment to Jesus. It was what was important to him. It's what he was here for, to do what the Father sent him to do. Uh, and verse 34 of John chapter 4. Uh, well, let me just take you back there. Have you look at that with me. The fourth chapter of John and verse 34. And listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish or finish his will work. He was here to finish the work that God gave him to do. Uh, much later, Jesus would pray 
what I like to refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, most often it's referred to as high uh, priestly prayer, his intercessory prayer, but it's found in John chapter 17. And here in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus is praying and with a heart burdened and heavy, anticipating his approaching death on the cross. He said in verse 1 of John chapter 17, the hour has come. The hour has come. What did he mean by that? The hour has come. Uh, well, he had just been telling previously to John chapter 17 in verses oh, chapter 14 through 16 of John. He had just been telling his disciples that he was about to uh, leave and return to the Father. And uh, But that he had something to do first. He had something to do first. And when Jesus said, the hour is come, as he begins his prayer there in John chapter 17, he's saying the time to do that, uh, which is yet to be done, has come. The hour has come. And we read in Matthew chapter 26 that Jesus prayed in the garden, if you recall, and in verse 39, he prayed, Father, uh, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, you know, humanly speaking, uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, he didn't want to, to suffer, uh, you know, as he knew he was going to suffer on the cross. And, and so he prayed, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. Much more important to him was to do the will of the Father, to finish the work that he had been sent to do. And he had said here in the beginning of this prayer, the hour has come. It's time to do that. It's time to finish the work that the Father sent him into the world to do. Uh, and so we read a little bit further there in John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying in verses 2 through 4, it says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, to, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished or finished the work which you gave me to do. Jesus was anticipating here his death on the cross for sinners like you and I. He had come to seek and to save those which were lost, as he said in Luke chapter 19, to seek and to save those which were lost. Well, perhaps you remember all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, when we read the account of creation, uh, six days God created through His Son, the Lord Jesus, the Word. Isn't that right? Uh, he spoke the world into existence out of nothing. John tells us in the Gospel of John as he begins his account that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was at the beginning of God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Uh, 
And God, when he finished his creative work through Christ there in Genesis. Verse 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis tells us that God saw what he had done. And he said, it's very good. He was satisfied. He was pleased uh, with what he had done. God was clearly, plainly satisfied with what he had done. Well, the prophet Isaiah prophesied and foretold of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We can read about that in uh, Isaiah chapter 53. We call that uh, the chapter of the suffering servant, uh, a chapter where Isaiah prophesies that uh, God will put our sin upon uh, his son and he'll bear our sin in his own body, dying in our place. And in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, if we were to go there and turn, we'd find that once again, God is satisfied. He's pleased with the work that he's done through Christ. Also, when God finished his work of creation, as reported in uh, the book of Genesis, Uh, He rested, did he not? On the sixth day after he had created all that he had created, he rested from his work. Well, the Lord Jesus also, when he finished his redemptive work, rested. The scripture makes that very clear to us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, 10th chapter of Hebrews and verse 12. Here the scripture says that But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down on the right hand of God. His work was done. He sat down. He rested from his work uh, on the cross. Back in the first chapter, we see it again in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. Here the scripture says, And he is the radiance of his glory, Speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, He rested. He rested when he'd finished his work. Uh, We, the scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, can enter into his rest. We can enter into that rest. That rest that He obtained by finishing the work on the cross that God sent Him into the world to do. The fourth chapter of Hebrews. uh, Verse 10 in particular tells us, For the one who has entered His rest has himself also rested from His work as God did from His. Uh, We can enter into His rest by how? By believing in Him. If we were to go back uh, to the first few verses of Hebrews 4 there, we would read, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest just as He said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But we can. 
by believing in the Lord Jesus, by trusting in Him. Uh, and that's how we enter into His rest, by believing with all of our heart in the Lord Jesus, by trusting in Him with all of our heart, placing all of our confidence, all of our trust, all of our hope in Him, and none uh, in ourselves, who we are and what we do. I once read where someone made this statement. He said, there is no truth. There is no truth more fundamental to the foundation of biblical Christianity than the Holy Spirit-inspired New Testament revelation concerning the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nothing more fundamental. This is what it's about. Salvation. Salvation. Not by my own hands. Not by my own works. But by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas were telling that Philippian jailer when he asked, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him, who He is and what He's done. For there is no other name, as we read earlier in Acts, no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. No other salvation apart from Him. Trust in Him with all your heart. Uh, what must I do? Just that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him with all my heart. Can you? Will you? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who He is and what He's done? The person of Christ, the work of Christ, he finished it all, did he not? The scripture is clear. He did everything needful, everything necessary to satisfy God on our behalf as sinners. What we could not do for ourselves, he has done for those who trust him and believe in him with all their heart. Oh, how I pray this morning that you might do just that. If you haven't already, if you haven't already, that you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Trust in Him, for there's no other hope, no other way. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me, but through me. Only in Christ is there salvation. May God help us to see that, to rest in that, trust in that and realize that it's not what we do but it's what he has done that saves us from our sin let's bow our hearts in prayer <laughs>